email todayradio at rte.ie. Well, we want to go now to Beirut, where last night there were anti-government protests over the growing anger towards the Lebanese government. Officials admitted that Tuesday's massive explosion was foreseeable and had been the subject of repeated warnings. Many have accused the authorities of corruption, neglect and mismanagement. The explosion in the port area of Lebanon's capital killed at least 135 people, injured thousands and left many more homeless. A two-week state of emergency has begun. Well, to get the latest, I'm joined on the line from Beirut now by freelance journalist Abby Cheeseman. Abby, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Um, I know that uh, the the tragedy of Tuesday night was the biggest explosion uh, Beirut has, has ever seen. Can you tell me, I suppose, right now, what is happening on the ground? Yeah, of course. So at the moment, the main thing that we're seeing is a mass cleanup. Um, And this is, I think it's really important to note that this is happening without seemingly any state involvement. The people have, for the last two days, have descended on the streets in their thousands, armed with uh, sweeping brushes, shovels. You know, you're seeing young men on the streets trying to move out crushed cars uh, in attempts to free people. The Civil Defence and the Red Cross are working day and night to move the wounded and the people that we're still finding to the hospital's and yeah, it's a kind of a, a nice kind of spirit that everyone's coming together, but also the anger and the resentment that this is an act of negligence by the government is mm. very much there. And the anger is overriding at the moment. And it, this is why we saw the protests last night. And the cleanup is a huge part of this because everyone that you speak to on the streets is happy to go down and help out. You know, these are their neighbors, their friends, their family, their relatives. But also this just overriding feeling of why is it always left down to us to solve the problems that the government has caused? And can you tell us, you mentioned the protest last night, can you tell us what happened, how many people were involved? It was kind of spread around, mostly around uh, Riada Sola, which is where the height of the October, uh, well, the winter anti-government protests were. Um, I would say there were, you know, around 100 uh, protesters down there. You know, the fact that they were tear gassed out of there, um, so many people are saying, do you know what, you've just blown us away with uh, ammonium nitrate and now you're going to tear gas us to protect a building that is empty after we've spent days on the streets trying to clean up a mess that you knew could potentially happen. And so the, the protest that we saw last night very much feels like the beginning of the protest movement restarting. I can only imagine that the the anger that is felt, especially by the youth who just feel like they had no future in this country anyway, given the enormous number of crises it was going through. And now they don't have a city. They don't have a capital. The heart of you know the country has been pulled apart. And so for the people who aren't fortunate enough to have second passports and can leave, there's there's very little hope left in this country. And at this point, they have nothing left to lose. I know that French President Emmanuel Macron was there just hours before those protests began and, and images of him walking around the streets, I think, being beamed around the world um, mm-hmm. on, on televisions. Uh, did that offer any sense of hope or help for the people of Beirut? I think there was kind of a mixed reaction. Uh, you know, for some people, his words when he was saying, you know, I'm here to support you and I'm not going to give money directly to the Lebanese government. We're going to find a way to support the people without going through a corrupt government. I think that offered some form of solace uh, to people who 
are completely desperate now. You know, 300,000 people have been left homeless across Beirut. But at the same time, there's a lot of feeling on the streets of the international community are only stepping in now when, you know, a week ago, people were equally as desperate. You know, the only difference is maybe they had a shelter, they had a home to stay in. And now, now that that's been ripped away, but Lebanon has been in a very desperate situation for a number of months and people have been desperate for foreign aid for a long time. And that hasn't been coming because the political elite have been refusing to make the reforms that would unlock the foreign aid. Mm. So I think there's just a, just a feeling of desperation among the people in Beirut and a, a French minister, a French prime minister coming in, a pre- president coming in and saying that these... Uh, you know, these aids will be unlocked, is, it's difficult, you know, they they don't have much hope or faith in any political class at the moment. And in terms of the rescue operation, you mentioned the enormous solidarity between the people out in the streets and trying to help clean up and, and look for survivors. But we are three days on now from the disaster. Is there any hope at this point that there will still be survivors found? Or what's the feeling on that? The hope is uh, lacking. <laughs> so I, even 24, 25 hours after the explosion, I spoke to a civil defence volunteer who said, you know, maybe we should focus our efforts elsewhere. We're not going to find survivors anymore. If they've been buried under the rubble for this long, we're going to be pulling out dead bodies. And, you know, we have seen the odd glimpse of hope. Uh, a child uh, was pulled out after uh, 26 hours. A man was found at sea after 30 hours after the explosion where the blast had blown him into the sea. Uh, both of them still alive. And it's really hard to tell, especially mm. because these things take so long. And it, the hours of digging uh, in the sweltering heat, caved in shop fronts and everything that people could be buried behind that we're just not clear of at the moment. How are the hospitals so, coping? They are very much struggling. The hospitals were... Uh, you know, oh, completely overwhelmed with coronavirus before this happened. You know, the the public hospitals, which are chronically underfunded, were saying they were basically at capacity and they didn't know what to do. The private hospitals uh, make up 85% of the healthcare system out here. And because of the economic crisis, uh, the president of the syndicate was of the private hospitals was saying that many were about to be closing their doors because they can't afford to buy the drugs that they need to treat their patients anymore. They can't afford to pay their staff. And this was all before they were faced with a mass casualty incident as big as this. We saw on the night of the explosion, a couple of hospitals were severely damaged. Uh, My local hospital, the ER room was destroyed in the blast. So they were treating patients in the car park before trying to find places to send them elsewhere. And you know, it's just not, it's not getting any easier. The number of wounded, and you can hear the sirens still blazing around Beirut constantly. There are still wounded being taken to the hospital. Can I just ask you finally, Abby, about your own experience? I mean, your own home and, and, and how you've been affected. Mm-hmm. So I was in my flat when it happened, uh, about just over a kilometre away from the blast site. And you know, a friend had tweeted, and the LA Times correspondent, his flat looks uh, just over the port, and he had tweeted saying there's been a huge explosion at the port, and this was the first blast. And so we all, you know, everyone was kind of talking, was like, oh, I wonder what's going on. A couple of people went down there, and I had just, you know, I was like peering off my balcony to see if I could see the plumes of smoke that were happening on the phone to my mother uh, talking about this, and then within minutes everything caved in. Uh, 
you could hear the explosion coming. It was it was weird. You know, there was it was not clear whether it was an airstrike, which was everyone's first reaction when the second explosion hit. Was you know, there's we're in heightened tensions between Israel and Hezbollah every summer. There's uh, you know, everyone thinks this is going to be the summer when the Israelis bomb or the war starts. And so when this happened, it was kind of everyone's first reaction was, okay, the war's starting again. And so, you know, I'm stood in the middle of my flat and all of the windows break into enormous shards, um, come flying in towards me, all the doors off their hinges, uh, you know, window frames, everything, everything's off the walls. And, you know, that immediate moment of shock when you don't know what's happened and you just, your brain jumps at the fact that it was probably an airstrike. And you could, there was like a very heavy rumbling overhead, which was to me, and, you know, it very much sounded like jets. You can understand completely where, you know, the Lebanese kind of conspiracy now is, have come from, because it sounded like a jet. But what we've now noticed was that the sounds, the the explosions before that you could hear and the, the rumbling afterwards was actually the shockwaves of uh, the explosion hitting building by building and blowing, you know, the windows out and destroying them building by building. And you could hear it coming towards you, hit your building and then leave on. And, you know, it was after that, that moment of panic, just grabbing your belongings. Uh, I'm on the top floor of this building. Uh, Many buildings in Beirut are very old. You don't know whether they're going to survive a blast like that. So just trying to get down the stairs as quickly as possible apartment building filled with smoke and dust, people screaming viscerally and getting down to the streets. I live right by an army base and, you know, the army were completely shocked in days, sprinting down the fl- uh, down the street with bloodied faces. Trees were down. Everyone was just sprinting towards their cars, trying to get out of Beirut mm. and all of the cars were destroyed and it was just complete, complete chaos. Um, oh God, it sounds desperate, Abby. It just sounds terrifying, really. Just, just finally, then, um, you mentioned the huge shards of glass coming in at you from from your windows, uh, and that's obviously an experience a lot of people have had. Um, what what is the situation with that in terms of window repairs then for everybody? Yeah, so this is one of the things that you know in the initial uh, chaos, everyone's just thinking about whether you know, their relatives were alive um, and, you know, making sure that everyone's accounted for. And I think individually, once everyone had gone through that experience and had hopefully, you know, found that everyone they knew was accounted for, then people started to think forward and were like, what happens next? Because this is an incredibly import-reliant country. Lebanon doesn't produce glass. (laughs) So every, you know, the first thing that everyone says when you hear their testimony about the explosion was... I heard all of the windows coming towards me, you know, the balconies, everything, all of the glass smashed in, you know, homes across Beirut. And Lebanon doesn't produce glass and it now doesn't have a port to import things into. So that is a huge issue in terms of reconstruction, let alone the fact that, you know, we're in complete economic collapse. So there's so nowhere to get People it. can't afford to, you know, there's the glass that we currently have in the country. But what happens when that glass runs out? it remains completely unclear. I imagine we're going to have to rely on international aid for glass deliveries. But again, how they get that into the country, I am not sure of at the moment. We have a similar issue with food. Really? (laughs) You know, Lebanon imports 80% of its food. It's not a self-sufficient country by 
any way, shape or form. And the port is an enormous part of that supply chain. We're going to have to leave it there, but no doubt we'll be talking to you again on this issue. But thank you very much for joining me this morning. Uh, That's Abby Cheeseman, freelance journalist in Beirut. Today with Sarah McInerney on RTE Radio 1.